Welcome to the Science of Politics uh, live edition from the Niskanen Center. I am uh, Matt Grossman. Today, uh, I am joined uh, by uh, Matt Glassman, who is a senior fellow at the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown University. Uh, Matt is a Yale political science PhD uh, and uh, a, a former uh, staffer at the Congressional Research Service uh, who uh, worked on congressional operations uh, and uh, appropriations. Uh, this event is proof that we are two different people despite our uh, common names uh, and social media uh, presences. Uh, our Last live edition of the Science of Politics was uh, with G. Elliot Morris, um, I think a day or two after uh, the election. Uh, so we were all very sleep deprived. Uh, we're not uh, uh, quite as sleep deprived uh, uh, now, but we did have sort of a classic Washington week uh, last, uh, last week with uh, deadlines, uh, with some late night brokering, with Dems seemingly in disarray, uh, and with no real uh, conclusion, just kicking the can uh, down the road. Uh, so Matt, bring us up to date. Uh, what is the state of the Biden uh, agenda in Congress and, and how much should we be reading into what happened last week? Well, I mean, I think uh, the developments last week were important, but uh, in the big picture, you know, the Biden agenda is much larger than this and his presidency is much larger than this and the 117th Congress is much larger than this. I mean, I think if you think about the 117th Congress in general, uh, I think we still need to reset ourselves that this is a crisis Congress, and it began that way. Uh, I mean, it's sort of wild to think about, but remember, this Congress began by doing something massive in its first 100 days, which is entirely atypical uh, for Congress. I mean, if you, if you talk about the 100 days, but when have Congress actually done something big in their first 100 days? Well, in 33, they did, right, in response to the second wave of the Depression, ton of legislating. And then they did in 2009 with the stimulus bill. And beyond that, it's hard to think of Congress acting sort of quickly out of the gate with major legislation. It just doesn't seem to exist, right? Um, you know, even sort of the Bush tax cuts were later than the first 100 days. But here we are in uh, Congress, and we have another crisis, COVID. And what do they do? They respond quickly with, uh, you know, American Rescue Plan, which was sort of the centerpiece of Biden's out-of-the-gate agenda and sort of passed in whole form uh, as, as he wanted, right? That was, a, that was a bill package sort of organized collected and presented by the White House as administration bill and it passes. And lest we forget, we also had an impeachment at the beginning of this Congress, sort of a second crisis with, you know, 15,000 troops stationed at the Capitol. And so this is a unusual Congress to begin with in what it's already happened to it and what it's already done. Uh, now, obviously, sort of the centerpiece of this, you know, first year uh, of the Biden presidency is sort of the Build Back Better agenda. Uh, you can call it the reconciliation bill and the bipartisan infrastructure bill at this point. And sort of the division of those, I think, is important. But where we are in that is that we're at party negotiations. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that people, uh, I think, don't quite perceive is that this is pretty normal uh, in two senses. First is that, you know, reconciliation and using it is sort of been sort of the standard fare for a while now. The last five presidencies have begun with unified government. And all of them have been sort of tempted into using the reconciliation process for party line legislating. I right? think about the Bush tax cuts, about Obama with the ACA, uh, Trump with the attempted repeal of ACA and with the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, and now Biden uh, attempting to do the Build Back Better agenda. So in some senses, this is sort of normal, uh, nor normal modern approach uh, for political parties. They're getting unified governments under new presidents and they're attempting to do sort of party line legislating on their major agenda pieces. Uh, now, sort of underneath the guts of that is that we are in sort of a negotiation phase. Uh, and, you know, we've seen this battle between the progressives and the moderates in the House that seems to be at least temporarily revolved or the balls have moved forward. And now it's a game between the House and Senate. And all of this is sort of kind of normal. Uh, but where we are is that they're taking sort of, uh, sort of presidential policy and paring it down. I think, you know, one of the main things we're seeing here is just how important Congress is. Um, this bill has certainly, I think, reintroduced everybody to the idea that the president just doesn't get what he wants and that's not how policy's made, right? Congress has to deal with it. And, uh, you know, the president can't snap his fingers and make people pass a $6 trillion bill or a $3 trillion bill or a $2 trillion bill. Um, and, you know, whatever the nuances of it are, sort of the rough terrain is that you have unified government and a very small majority. And that empowers factions. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Um, 
you know, at, at its core. So you're resetting expectations uh, lower. So I'll try to ri- raise them again. We we had we have the the most experienced uh, congressional president ever. Uh, spent a lot of time uh, telling us that that was going to to pay off in uh, negotiations uh, with uh, Republicans in the Senate uh, and uh, with a, a moderate image. Uh, we have the 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 supposedly magical Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, who's able to uh, rein in her troops and bring them all along. Um, didn't didn't we see signs that uh, that that was uh, not not really happening? Well, I mean, I think you're just running up against reality here. Uh, which is that as soon as you have margins this small in the House or the Senate, right, these are sort of the smallest margins of the modern era, you're just empowering anyone to become a veto player. And this isn't just mansion and cinema in, in the Senate, because I think that's sort of well-known terrain when you're 50-50. But in the House, um, you know, we keep talking about sort of the rise of the progressives. And I think there is sort of reason to believe that the progressives are becoming ascendant in the Democratic Party. But the reason they're becoming a Senate in this moment is because the margins are so small, right? If the Democrats had 245 seats, as you know, is not unusual for majority party in the House, there'd be a lot more room to sort of pick this majority apart or pick this faction apart, right? When you have to hold together 20, 30 people to sort of hold the balance of power, it's quite easy for the leadership to start buying people up and cutting deals that sort of disintegrate your faction. When all you have to do is hold four or five or seven people together, uh, it becomes much more difficult to pick you off. And of course, in the Senate, when you're just a lone individual, like there's no sort of picking you apart, right? You just, you just become sort of a true, you know, uh, pivot point, right? In the, in the, in the pivotal politics sense. Uh, of the House, the Senate and the White House, uh, is the behavior of any of those uh, abnormal or surprising? Uh, what's What's been most surprising so far? Well, I mean, I think that I am, you know, I... That's a good question. I, I think, the, you know, I, I thought the White House would be more sort of aggressive about how they were approaching this. Uh, it seems like a lot of this was left to Congress over the last month. Um, but again, that's a strategic choice that, you know, they made. It's not like they forgot to be sort of aggressive about this, but I thought the White House would be more engaged. I thought, you know, you know, I didn't quite think we'd see sort of the fight out of the progressives we got. Um, you know, traditionally sort of uh, Pelosi has preferenced the uh, centrists, you know, her majority makers, and always done her best to sort of take care of the care and feeding of that, because ultimately she has been sort of electorally focused in the end, uh, even if she personally might agree with the progressive agenda. And that's usually led to the progressives being rolled, uh, because their, their votes were sort of taken for granted, and you do what the majority makers want, and you make sort of these centrists are happy and they win their elections and stick with you because they have sort of a more credible threat. And so I think the progressives standing the ground. Uh, and doing their flex last week to really put their foot down and, and credibly threaten to block something on the floor is the most surprising development to me. Um, that's not sort of been their MO. Uh, but again, like, you know, they don't need as many people to hold together. They keep talking about sort of, you know, 96 progressives or they can get half of them to vote for it. In the end, there's probably, you know, a couple dozen members who think of themselves as progressives first rather than some other sort of Hill identity. Uh, but now that's plenty enough. Um, and so they become a credible player. So I think I think that's been the most surprising to me is that they didn't get not necessarily rolled, but that they didn't have to sort of give in and sort of eat, eat the deal at this point. Right. I think eventually they're still going to have to eat a deal. Uh, the bicameral nature of the negotiations means that they are not going to be able to sort of uh, bend the Senate to their will in, in the same way. Well, the, the White House and Pelosi also got nothing to sell them. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I, so I, you know, I think that, you know, in, in the big picture, right, this does look like legislative politics, right? And, and I think, you know, the, the key on the Democratic side is that this isn't sort of, sort of the mirror of the Republican situation where you have a faction like the Freedom Caucus or before it, the Tea Party that not only held the balance of power, but wasn't necessarily looking to get the yes, Right. So they, they were a separatist group, you know, often seeking sort of that outsider credibility to, to, to vote no and be like, we are not conservatives. Right. And they, they flexed it a lot. Uh, what that ended up doing was moving bills towards the center because Boehner or Ryan would have to go deal with the Democrats. That's not where the progressives are coming from. I think ultimately everyone still wants to get the yes. Maybe Manchin doesn't, maybe Cinema doesn't. But in the House, 
I think you're dealing with good faith players who are just trying to pull the bill closer to their ideal points. Um, and in the end, they'll do the best they can to do that, uh, but they will vote for the package in the end. And so that leads to sort of brinkmanship, um, but it's brinkmanship in, in the bluffing sense, right? Everyone is just trying to see what they can claw their direction, you know, increase the bill by, you know, $400 billion. That matters, right? Get a, one more provision in there you like, that matters. But it's not backed by sort of, I think, a credible threat to sink the president's agenda the way the Freedom Caucus might be more than happy to tell Boehner to stick it, right, and just vote against him. So a reminder uh, for those of us joining us live is that you can ask questions in the Q&A or the chat uh, function, and we will incorporate them into our uh, discussion. So we're also speaking at a time when uh, supposedly the, the full faith and credit of the United States are on the line and the factions are dug in. Uh, and yet I just can't get animated about it because it seems like one side is going to give in and it doesn't matter to any important outcome, which side that is. Is that right? Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think so, you know, Matt, Matt Green over at Mischief's the Faction had a nice piece this week talking about the way members sort of misperceive, misperceive things. And one thing members seem fixated on is the idea that tiny policy decisions in Congress have sort of electoral impacts. And the debt limit seems to be a great example of this, where members twist themselves up into this, where what is the actual sort of marginal impact of this vote on a future election? It's probably close to zero, uh, at least in the aggregate. Now, you can always point to a story about one member lost sort of their election based on one little vote that became a huge issue. But that seems to be not true in aggregate. And I, I think the debt limit, the problem right now is there's no vehicle, right? And the sort of if we define the modern era in Congress as sort of post-2009, where you have a 60-vote Senate and sort of this heightened partisan animosity, we've always had vehicles to raise a debt limit that were like must-pass bipartisan bills, starting with the BCA deal in 11, and then basically the raising of the BCA cap since then, uh, and then the CR in 17, and, and again, the BCA caps. So there's always been this sort of vehicle for it to ride on that was going to require, A, a bipartisan deal to get that vehicle through. Uh, so, you know, you would get like 80 votes in the Senate or whatever, or 75 votes in the Senate. And then the leaders could sort of talk the debt limit into that. Um, and this didn't mean there weren't hostage negotiations. Of course there were. But it was sort of, you know, the debt limit had always been sort of a, you know, a uh, sort of hammer that the minority hit the majority with. You know, if you had unified government in the 1970s, right, the debt limit was sort of like something they hit you with. Uh, but then now we don't have this sort of bipartisan vehicle to ride on right now. There's no more BCA caps to extend. Um, the CR has failed to be the vehicle and it's been pushed off. That was sort of the one way it might've looked like the past 10 years. If the CR plus disaster relief plus Afghanistan relief could have been the vehicle to ride this, it was not. Uh, maybe that's the Republicans just digging in more, but at any rate, we're stuck at this point where you're not going to do this, uh, sort of that, that way anymore. And, and someone will give in. Um, I can't get to a point. It would have to be a colossal coordination failure for like sort of the debt limit not to be raised here. Um, and you can get that in politics, right? What you hope is that sort of spite and animosity don't start to drive behavior here as much as sort of rational considerations about these things. But I assume that someone given both parties positions on this are ridiculous right now. Um, and uh, I, I think you'll probably get something like, you know, a UC agreement in the Senate to sort of streamline the reconciliation process and the Democrats will just do this. Now, what they do is a different story, right? If they go and try and extend the debt limit to sort of a gazillion dollars or whatever to clear it up the table, that's very different than they extend it enough that it'll last another year and we'll be right back in this position in 2022. And I think that's still a wide open game. Uh, but, you know, getting into the sort of details of whether you're going to suspend it or raise it to a dollar figure or it just it, it, it strikes me as a very sort of elite D.C. concern that doesn't actually have impacts. So we agree that uh, who gives in in this dispute uh, is not going to have any electoral impact. Uh, we have several questions about uh, the potential electoral impact of the reconciliation bill uh, itself. So uh, McConnell has uh, said uh, that uh, Dems are going to suffer either way. Uh, they're either going to uh, not pass anything and therefore Biden's get, uh, agenda is going to be seen as, as failing or they're going to pass something uh, and it's going to be too big and, and too uh, unpopular. Is that right or... Uh, uh, is there a way through here where um, passing uh, this reconciliation agenda actually helps Democrats electorally? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, the broader sort of political science point is that like passing legislation that benefits people is really overrated in terms of like electoral impacts. 
Uh, you can literally like cut checks to people, right? They, we've done this routinely in the last decade. They just literally cut checks to people uh, and they don't give you a whole lot of credit for it retrospectively in the election. Uh, you know, and, and for a party, like passing and failing to pass stuff doesn't seem to be that correlated with electoral success. Either is this idea that you need to sort of fulfill your agenda. It just doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that drives voters, sort of this core competence type thing. Um, elections seem to turn on other matters of, of partisanship and the economy uh, and sort of social identities. Now, what you can do as a party is do your best to make things go well in the country. Uh, and to the degree that your bill can improve the lives of people and improve the state of the economy, they may not directly give you credit for passing the you know, Build Back Better Act of 2021, but if they're feeling better about their own economic situation and their perception of the American economy is that it's doing better, that can help you. Uh, and so there's definitely incentives for governing parties to pass things that do good things for people and improve the American economy and the state of America and the world. And so there's certainly an incentive to do that. And there's, an, you know, obviously the opposite incentive for the minority party now to, to stop that from happening. Um, but I don't think sort of like whether the $15 minimum wage is in the bill drives anything uh, beyond that, you know, provisions effect on the economy down the road. Uh, so, you know, um, parties want to do stuff that is good and popular and helps the economy and, and that makes sense and things they can campaign on. But ultimately, it's pretty marginal impact in terms of actually passing some specific thing. Uh, someone asked me the other day what I thought the effect of these bills passing would be in the Virginia's governor's race. And I said nothing, like zero. Um, right, like no impact, right? Even if you could pass this stuff, like none of it's going to go in effect by next November and sort of like no one votes on sort of like the credibility of a party to be able to fulfill its campaign promises in a state election. It's just not, it's just not particularly relevant. Yeah, let me underline a few of those uh, points because they're commonly uh, confused. Um, the, the, we, we, first of all, all of our evidence is of fairly minimal uh, electoral impacts, and the baseline is that the the party, the presidency, will, will lose seats in the in the midterm election, regardless of what what happens. To the extent that we have evidence, it's about uh, the the bigger the success agenda that you have is actually, if anything, negatively correlated uh, with electoral performance in the next election. The counter is a, is what Matt said about the actual effect of policies. So there's no counter evidence that passing something big is good for you electorally. The counter evidence is people who explicitly benefit from a policy or if that policy has an effect on the economy as a whole, uh, that can be beneficial. So those things really aren't in, in con as much contradiction uh, as, as sometimes people, people uh, say. But there is a lot of conversation and we did get another uh, question about the popularity of things in uh, the reconciliation uh, bill. So we're having this kind of top line uh, argument about how big the package should be. We're also having an argument about the extent to which are the child tax credits uh, better to do uh, than, than some other piece? Are they, should they be means tested or not? And a lot of this conversation is about perceived electoral or public opinion uh, effect. Uh, it, it, is there any, and, and should, should Congress uh, be concerned about the design of these policies in terms of how popular they will be? Well, I mean, I think I think there's two questions here. One is the sort of normative question, should they be concerned? And second is, are they concerned? And everything we know is that members of Congress do feel very concerned about these things. Like, uh, again, probably to an extent that's irrational, um, but maybe not from the individual perspective of a member who might be, you know, most members are overly worried about sort of the policy ramifications for electoral interests. But uh, do you want to do popular stuff? Sure, right? Like, uh, it, it's certainly not going to hurt you. Um, in the abstract to be like, well, I'm doing popular things and not unpopular things, but I think it's certainly overrated. And I think a lot of sort of like, well, are you going to means test this? Are you going to limit it? This is much more a function of sort of the procedural situation in Congress than anyone's sort of normative vision of what these policies should be. Uh, I think one of sort of the keys to understanding Congress right now is that the nature of the partisanship and the nature of sort of how these bills are passing forces these political actors to work in sort of very strong constraints that they wouldn't normally be working in. Uh, and, and so and the most important piece of that is that, you know, the reconciliation process requires things to be uh, uh, related to budgetary impacts, right? And so the nature of how we talk about everything comes down to budgetary impacts. Um, and so, you know, when you say we're going to do something popular, right, it doesn't mean you're choosing the most popular thing to do. And it doesn't mean you know you, you have to do that, but you're choosing things that fit within this narrow path you have. Um, and 
you know, it's like, well, why would you means test this? Why would you limit this to a certain number of years? Well, members of Congress wouldn't choose this naturally out of the air. Uh, they're working within the structures of the institutions they have, right? And, um, you know, and that, you know, and that can be sort of the, the rules of the Senate and the Byrd rule, or that can be sort of the political constraints of the acts. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think anyone ever thought about, well, is it popular to start a dental benefit six years from now and have it only go for two years? Right. That's, you know, dental benefits are popular. Why not start them immediately and have them last forever would be sort of the typical person's position on that. And the answer to that would be sort of like this is sort of the I don't want to say artificial, but it's the structural incentives uh, of the deal. And I, I think sort of the bigger picture in that about popular is, you know, reconciling this idea of a top line, which is what a lot of people like to talk about. How much are we spending? Right. Versus what you actually are spending it on. It's amazing the number of people who I hear just sort of parroting partisan lines as if sort of like spending 3.5 trillion is better than spending 2.2 trillion. Like maybe it is, maybe it's not, or the opposite. Like it's, it's better to spend less without having any clue about what you're spending it on underneath. And, and I think those top lines also serve to sort of obscure sort of the, the sort of differences within the Democratic party, for instance, over these issues. Uh, if you think about mansions, 2.2 trillion versus say the progressives, 2.2 trillion, uh, if you just had them write them down on a piece of paper, what those would be, it'd be light years apart, right? It'd be light years apart. Uh, same with Mansion and the House moderates. I think that's another really important piece. If you look at that Mansion letter, I think it's a fascinating document to think about contemporary politics because uh, it really smacks of an old-fashioned home-style personal vote. It's a laundry list of things that are good for West Virginia coal interests that help West Virginia financially, but also show no opposition to raising taxes, really, right? Which is sort of like when you think about, well, Tell me about a moderate Democrat. What don't they want to do? Well, they don't want to raise taxes on sort of like corporate interest. Well, Joe Manchin does. He's fine with it, right? And really reflective of sort of um, a Congress that we, a lot of people don't want to believe exists anymore, but one that's made up of local representatives thinking about local issues. So uh, we haven't really had much of an opportunity to see Democrats' uh, prioritization. They pretty much put everything in uh, the... Uh, the, the American Rescue Plan um, that they had talked about. Uh, the presidential primary, uh, everyone sort of said they were for everything. There wasn't a whole lot of we're for this versus this. So now we have a time when we have to make th that decision. Um, what is going to control whether we see a Medicare expansion versus a Medicaid expansion versus a child tax credit versus uh, there's there's so much uh, that that is that is potentially on the table, and it seems like there's not a lot of guide to what is the top uh, priorities of of some of these actors. Uh, the White House it was was in Michigan yesterday and mostly touted the uh, child care benefits uh, and the child tax credit. Didn't mention anything about health care or energy. Uh, so that, I guess that was surprising to me. But what what should we expect? in terms of what the most likely things are that's going to be uh, included in this and what does that tell us? I mean, I think part of it depends on how much sort of mansion and or cinema uh, decide they need this thing to be paid for, right? Because, you know, then if they decide that, you know, basically the, the Democrats have a, in the actual reconciliation instructions, they have like a 1.75 trillion in wiggle room, right? Everyone talks about this 3.5 trillion number, but that's really notional, right? Like because ways and means and finance are allowed to sort of offset these things with their taxing authorities, right? They could spend 10 trillion as long as they offset it with 10 trillion in sort of tax uh, tax increases. And so getting to how much deficit spending here, Mansion and Cinema do is a big is a big question and how they want to go about doing it. If Cinema's not going to give in on the corporate tax increase, you're, and she's demanding that this thing's paid for, I don't know where you are at that point, right? You're losing sort of like nearing a trillion dollars in revenue in some sense that it's going to sort of come up to pay for these things you want to do. Um, I assume that, you know, the centerpiece of the spending in terms of a single item is the child tax credit. Um, but that's a massive cost too, right? That thing is like almost balances out the corporate tax increases right there. Uh, and, you know, I think a, a lot of the stuff is sort of super popular, right, as a, as a polling thing, be it sort of the, the paid leave, the childcare stuff, the college stuff, and any of the Medicare, you know, any of the Medicare expansions pull really well, right? Um, but again, I think it's more a question on the pay for side right now. 
So let's say we we do get to something around uh, two $2 trillion dollars. As you said, there there could be very different things put in that that bucket. Um, seems like one story we could tell is that this is just about the particular individualized local preferences of these two senators. Um, but there's there's political science that would suggest, oh no, the, the provisions uh, that are included are going to be responsive to party constituencies or public opinion or um, marginal voters. I mean, is this really a very internal process driven by these idiosyncratic preferences of Cinnamon and Mansion or Cinnamon and Mansion, or are there some kind of structural factors that'll determine what gets in that $2 trillion bucket? I don't know. I mean, I, I am very partial to the idea that Mansion and Cinema are the only ones with credible threats to vote no. And that means that policy is going to be driven towards them. Um, now, you know, what that actually means in the Senate, I mean, there are a bunch of other moderate, moderate senators hiding behind all this, right? And, you know, could we see someone rear their head in the Senate who's like, wait a minute, what about my idea? Uh, that's always going to be possible in the Senate. Uh, I don't know if anyone has the credible threat. I'm not even sure why cinema has a credible threat. She has developed into this sort of position where it's not even obvious why she has a credible threat, except that she just does, right? And it could be as simple as like, Hey, I'm just going to be sort of uh, overtly irrational and hold my, you know, and and hold my breath here, and you're going to have to make me stop. Um, but I, they, I certainly don't believe anyone who says that sort of the progressives have leverage here over Mansion and Cinema, right? They they are not going to walk away from a, a bare bones deal here. But Mansion and Cinema, particularly Mansion, I think could in theory walk away from a bare bones deal here, uh, and that gives him the leverage. Um, so I think it does come down to a lot of what he wants. That said, like people, you know, I think a lot of on the people on the left sort of, you know, poo-poo mansion is some sort of stick in the mud, but I don't, I don't think he's like trying to kill this bill. I think that was sort of like the paranoia of the left, right? Is that what mansion wants is to just get the biff through the house. And then he's just going to crater the whole deal. And that doesn't strike me as right. Right. Like mansion is still like a team playing Democrat. Um, in some ways more than cinema is, right? And I don't think he has any interest in torpedoing the president's agenda, uh, but I think he has a strong interest in pulling it the direction he wants to do, which is something sort of like a left populist agenda in some ways, right? Given his, his openness to the tax increases. So did they, so did they win anything though by, by, by not delinking these? In other words, if let's say they, they had succeeded in delinking the infrastructure bill, would that have moved Manchin and Cinema's number down? Uh, not that they might not pass anything, but but now by by winning this this lack of delinking, have progressives kind of moved up Manchin and Cinema's number? I mean, they, they they removed that threat, which I don't think was particularly big, but they definitely removed that credible threat to just get completely rolled, right? Like for Manchin to just blow this thing up and be like, you know what, forget it. Um, so they won that. I don't think, I, I mean, I think the main thing their flex did was it moved the process forward, right? They got to a point where we could start the negotiations. In some ways, it was just like this, you know, we were just in sort of limbo for a while, right? The president hadn't really engaged. Manchin hadn't sort of set down a marker about what he wanted. And it all sort of happened simultaneously. Pelosi couldn't figure out a way to put this thing on the floor and pass it. The progressives sort of did their flex. And then we get we get to go to the negotiations now, right? Manchin drops his letter, right? That leaks out. And now we have people sort of presenting numbers they want finally uh, and engaging. And then Biden steps in, right? Which is important. Although I thought he stepped in in sort of a sort of a, a less sort of decisive way than he thought might happen. I thought maybe he'd step in and say, no, we're taking this vote now. Let's do it. And then here's what the framework of the negotiations is going to be. But he didn't do that. But he did move them on a process where now you have actual negotiations with numbers that make actual sense. Um, and, uh, you know, the progressives have then said they're coming down. So everyone's involved now in sort of that factional negotiation. I think probably, you know, maybe the losers here are the House moderates, right, who like the salt tax, like, who knows, man? Like, I don't see them as like, like, that's, they're sort of stuck there, right, where they're like back mansion on this top line deal. But they don't they really want different sets of things in mansion because they're very different kinds of moderates in mansion. And they may be the people on the cutting room floor here. Um, but, you know, again, with the margins this small, you know, if you want to if you want to go stand out on the plank and take on Pelosi, you can do it at any time. It doesn't take a lot of people. Um, and Josh Gottheimer certainly is acting in a way that doesn't, you know, doesn't strike me as productive, but also doesn't strike me as someone who's necessarily going to fold in again and be like, OK, I'll vote for whatever. Yeah, although I, I think they, in some ways, took the fall for um, Mansion and Cinema. There, I think 
people didn't quite notice that there was also the date of October 1st on that mansion letter that slipped out. So the, the senators were also <laughs> hoping and expecting that uh, they would be able to get the infrastructure deal through um, while they, they hadn't agreed to much. Um, so I don't know if the, the House was completely on their on their own there. But so we are in some sense moving forward, but in other sense, we, we still have the same letter from late July <laughs> that Manchin's uh, position hasn't, I guess, officially moved off of. Um, so what what did we learn from that? Uh, we had a question uh, from Ann about the energy-related uh, programs there. Uh, that obviously was where he was most specific. He wanted everything to go through his, his committee. Uh, he wanted, um, you know, anything that was a tax credit for alternative energy to also be a tax credit for traditional energy. So that seems like pretty traditional constituency uh, uh, politics. What what do you foresee there? Are they going to be able to come to a deal where they do get some energy provisions that that matter and still satisfy Mansion? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I, I I mean it's hard to it's hard to imagine Mansion being like you know what I'm just going to abandon West Virginia coal right that's it I'm not going to do it right and you know Mansion has a huge personal vote in West Virginia right he's running you know whatever 25 points ahead of like the presidential candidates in the Democratic Party. But uh, it's not that big. It's not big enough to overcome a lot of things like that. And nor does he want it, right? Like, I don't even, you know, who knows if it's even electoral calculus for Manchin or, or he just actually believes in this stuff and actually wants to represent his interests, which is something people forget about, right? Like, people actually have, like, policy positions they believe in just as good public policy. Yeah, sincerity is is way underestimated, I think, in, in these discussions. Absolutely, right? And, I, and, and uh, you know, the fact that sincerity overlaps with sort of electoral benefit also shouldn't surprise us. The reason you win elections from people often is because you happen to like represent those people in some sort of like really sort of basic way. You're a farmer too, right? You're from West Virginia too, right? You care about the people who work in the coal mines too. Um, so no, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think sort of like, I don't know how to think about climate change in this stuff, honestly. Like it, it feels like a piece of Biden's agenda that is extremely important to activist liberal coalitions and just not that important to typical voters. Um, it's not particularly popular relative to some of the other things in this stuff. It's not gonna have a noticeable impact in an electoral sense. Uh, and there's significant coalitions within the Democratic Party that aren't big fans of it, right? Starting with sort of like West Virginia coal. And to me, that makes it sort of as policy packaging exp expendable. Um, now, they're never going to sort of like jettison climate change out of this bill, but the cost of it may be just that it is a much more holistic energy package that gives you Senator Manchin sort of like continued tax subsidies on, you know, tax expenditures on sort of traditional, uh, traditional uh, energy stuff. Um, so no, I don't, I don't think sort of like they're going to like win Manchin over on, on climate and climate seems to me to be the sort of least important piece of this um from the big picture package and it wouldn't it wouldn't shock me if sort of that's a place where biden's going to compromise too so another uh, piece of that that i think has been misunderstood in in mansion's letter is he also talked about the federal reserve and people are interpreting that as that had to be in the in the bill somehow and was was impossible i think he was just saying i'm waiting to see if the federal reserve is going to continue to to ease or if i think inflation is under control so we had it we did have a question about uh, inflation and if that is going to have any any effect, um, obviously controlled mostly by monetary policy, but uh, that their mansion has raised it, um, and there might be some concern that that would interact uh, with uh, the congressional agenda. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, I, I agree in general that the mansion letter is not here's what I want in this bill. It's more holistic the way a senator operates. Like when he says. You know, policies are going to go through uh, ENR, you know, jurisdictionally. That's not something you can control in a bill, right? I mean, in theory, you could. You could do some congressional, you know, statutory rulemaking in there. But I, I think a lot of these policies are just sort of mansion laying out side pieces he wants, which is sort of very typical of sort of Senate negotiations, right? Um, you know, one thing to say, about, one thing you always say about the Senate is like everything's always up for negotiation. Uh, because of the required deal making in the Senate, almost at the individual level, you're bargaining across all sorts of policies at all sorts of times. Uh, it's not just, oh, we're passing this reconciliation bill and everything we're going to deal with is internal to this bill. Um, and that's true of all legislative politics and all politics in general, but it's particularly noticeable in the Senate where, you know, you could easily be uh, winning concessions on some sort of nomination hold while you're negotiating some completely unrelated bill uh, on, on um, you know, uh, 
economic policy like we are here. I don't know enough about sort of inflationary politics or inflationary policy uh, outside of sort of the basic sort of monetary control of the Fed and, and you know, congressional control of fiscal policy to, to really comment on sort of the effects there, um, except that if Manchin's concerned about it, uh, you have to take it seriously. Yeah, it is interesting that it's a, an issue on which uh, Republicans traditionally own. They have a better um, perceived record among voters on inflation. So it's something they bring up uh, more more often. Um, but I, I don't know how much it will will impact the, the bill specific provision. So let's step back a little bit and talk about uh, what we've learned, I guess, from a political science perspective. Um, our parties, how, how powerful our parties in Congress. On the, on the one side, where we have almost party line votes. On the other, we've seen some things um, falling apart. And one debate that we have been having for a while is about the extent to which we're seeing ideological polarization versus party polarization. And some people say, well, it, it looks polarized, but it's really just partially or mostly a function of increased party control. On the other hand, it does seem like once we you know, strip away that that control, it really does seem like ideological factions going on more of a unidimensional spectrum than maybe we're used to seeing. Um, so so should we revise that that understanding that this was mostly party and it, it might be real ideology? Well, I mean, obviously, like the intersection of these things is often difficult to tease out. And I think sort of I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that sort of the nationalization of party politics has forced more and more people into sort of, uh, you know, what Francis Lee would call the beyond ideology mode, right? Where even if you disagree ideologically with these people, you have to be a team player because your collective fates are so much more dependent on it than they used to be. Uh, and so that sort of non-ideological party cohesion feels like it's increasing, right? The, the minority in the house almost feels like a parliamentary style opposition party now where they are just going to reflexively sort of vote, vote no on the, on the agenda of the majority and try and wreck it, uh, care, carefully wreck it in order they can get, regain power. And again, there's a lot of conflating variables here. Sort of the narrow nature of chamber control is a huge impact here. Uh, it just wouldn't make sense in some ways to take sort of like a Bob Michael 80s strategy, right? Where you're just gonna try and improve the bills for your constituents and for your party, for your view of how bills should be, because you have no hope of getting the chamber back. Right. And so I think there's a lot of those sort of forces right now that may not be directly impinging on things, but are sort of features of politics that have altered how parties behave in Congress, right? Nationalization and narrow majorities. And both those things could reverse, right? Certainly narrow majorities could reverse sometime. And nationalization may be less so, but even in theory could. But if you don't remember the house right now man like we talk about mansions personal vote no one else has one right everyone else is hanging on the party thread I, it's so weird to think about sort of you know mayhew's electoral connection where he makes the claim and i'm not i was never quite sure how he you know how he built this claim that like you know about a third of the component of what's going on in the house elections was out of the members control right feels a lot higher than that now feels a lot higher than that now for whatever reason you can come up with. But like your marginal ability to affect things in your district uh, has pushed much more members to jump on sort of the, the party bandwagon. But I think another thing going on that's important to this story is sort of the role of the leadership and the type of people who want to be there. Um, the lack of policy work available to the typical member of Congress right now uh, because of the reduction in power of the committee system and the increased influence of the leadership over the composition of the negotiations and the bills themselves, uh, has exited a lot of policy wonks from Congress. Um, it's not fun. It's not fun to be a policy wonk there and not get to do anything. And who's replaced them? Well, surprise, surprise, it's people who don't mind being party soldiers, right? Who don't mind spending their day dialing for dollars and then sort of backing the leadership when they get the talking points, right? Um, and, you know, that can be overstated, right? Like everyone points to Cawthorn not hiring any policy staff, right? Or saying he's going to hire all comms, all comms staff to sort of just message the leadership's message for him, right? Or whatever Freedom Caucus message maybe he wanted to put out. Um, but I also think that's kind of real, right? And that quickly transforms sort of the nature of your people there at a personnel level uh, and their willingness to participate sort of in these beyond ideology party activities. And so and so I don't know. I don't know what that sums to. What, what's your take? <laughs> well, I do think that there is this other route that the Republicans obviously have have uh, 
done a lot of, which is you can join an ideological faction and make that your identity. Um, and it does seem like there's there's some, uh, you know, there's a, definitely an attempt to copy that among some Democrats and we'll, we'll see if it works. But I think it's born of the same process you're talking about that, um, you know, there isn't the committee issue specific route available. Um, and so what's available is either being a party soldier or, or being a, a map for the for some ideological uh, cause so uh, obviously interacting with this is is uh, Senate rules um, and there was a lot of talk at the beginning uh, of the the Congress about potential changes uh, to the the filibuster I think you and I have both on our podcast had multiple hour-long conversations uh, about the potential for all sorts of reforms that still end with, well, but really nothing's going to happen um, in the near term. On the other hand, it, it does seem like that, you know, that this thing will eventually be on its, on its way out uh, with, with the, the sort of current configuration. So why are we in this strange place uh, in the filibuster where it really isn't going to change this Congress, um, but people still think it will eventually? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the basic point that I have about this is that the current equilibrium is not stable, right? The 60 vote Senate where everything is filibustered by the minority party for all intents and purposes isn't a stable equilibrium and is going to have to change. Uh, like you said, the Senate, uh, the quip I always use is the Senate can stay irrational and unstable a lot longer than you think. <laughs> um, but uh it also requires the correct short-term configuration of things in order to give the majority party the incentive to change things. And that configuration is you have enough votes to do it and you have unified government control. No one's going to do this out of the good government reform nature, right? No, no matter what your sort of like left-wing cousin thinks, right? No one's going to do this just so that we can set things up for the future and hand sort of the other party the keys to this. Uh, so it's going to require a unified government with enough votes to do it. And essentially, we haven't seen that yet. Um, and I think there's two reasons there. One, right now, Democrats literally don't have enough votes. Uh, and second is that I think there's enough senators who are a little more hesitant to do this than you think. I not only don't think there's 50 votes to this right now, I'm not convinced there's 45 votes to this right now. Uh, there may only be 42 votes to do this right now. And so that puts us in the spot where you have to get to a point. And all these... Uh... Uh, presumably all these intermediary things that that we've all spent a lot of time talking about are suffer from the same problem everybody knows that 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 takes you down the route of basically full elimination yeah and I, and and you know people have right now been able to sort of psychologically wall off the executive calendar in the senate from the legislative calendar and it hasn't been the case that the precedents from reed in 2013 and from McConnell in 2017 over executive noms, lower court noms, and Supreme Court noms have tipped over into the legislative realm. But everyone is terrified to do anything in the legislative realm, right? Even make one little tiny exception there because that probably is the floodgates people need to just let it rip. Um, and you know, people keep looking, particularly liberals, keep looking, progressives keep looking for that one bill that will annoy the, you know, the Senate centrist Democrats enough for them to sign on to this stuff. Um, and I'm not sure it exists right now. You just, you know, the Democrats' solution to this, you might want to say to them, well, you just need to win five more Senate seats or something like that, right? Uh, in order to do this, it's not clear that people like Manchin are ever going to do this. Maybe not even other people too, be it Hester or even Hassan or whoever, right? Well, the, the other dynamic is there doesn't seem to be anything that is on Manchin's agenda that he can't get right now and that he thinks would <laughs> he would get when. With, with this. I think people keep saying, well, he, they've gotten him to a point of voting rights that he supports, but that's still not his top priority. And it's just unclear what top priority he has that he can't get past. Right. And I mean, that doesn't mean this isn't impact. It doesn't mean it doesn't have an impact, right? Because we don't know like to what degree fear of the Democrats doing this drives sort of minority party behavior. And that's hard to measure, but it certainly makes sense theoretically that McConnell or others will not push too hard because they're scared this might be done. And the debt limit might be a spot where that's true. Now, the other side of it is that maybe McConnell wants this gone, right? Republicans have right now a structural advantage in the Senate, right? Which means I think all else equal, they're more likely to have unified governments going forward than, than the Democrats are. 
Uh, and so maybe McConnell will be just happy with it going, particularly if you get the Democrats to do it, right? You can kind of see that story on the, on the executive calendar side, where they just block so hard on Obama's executive branch nominations that Rita's no other option but to do this. But ultimately what it means is that McConnell and the Republicans can get the Supreme Court justices they want uh, without having to take the hit for doing this. Now, what that hit means, honestly, it could fall in the same spot as these debt limit votes. Like, does anyone really care? But certainly on the Hill, people act as if it's going to be an issue. Uh, and so maybe that's McConnell's play. Now, maybe that's six dimensional chess that doesn't exist, right? Just too clever, um, but it could be the truth. So I, I, I really don't know, uh, except that I, I am very confident that the filibuster as we currently know it is not going to exist uh, in the sort of medium term, it's going to go. Uh, some party is going to find a reason that they need to get rid of it. Um, I don't necessarily see that the Democrats' agenda. Certainly, you know, it was possible. I mean, people were talking about crazy stuff back in November, right? Like, like a minimum wage. <laughs> so, so yes, on the one hand, we did have talk about we're going to add two states, we're going to eliminate the filibuster, we're going to have all these Bernie's policy agenda, we're going to uh, you know, expand the Supreme Court. Um, so some of that stuff, um, you know, certainly seems like uh, it, it was it was a, a true uh, pipe dream for this Congress. Um, on the other hand, um, in terms of a policy agenda, um, you know, how should we look at things now? As you mentioned, we have the American Rescue Plan. We had a a holiday, a few small small things. We're likely to have a science bill that that's pretty uh, big. That 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 was also bipartisan. So we have some bipartisan stuff, some pure um, partisan stuff, and we're still out of the reconciliation bill. Most likely to get three or four new social programs, uh, a, a reversal of a, both parts in some form of the Republicans' major achievement um, from from two years ago. Uh, from from the previous Congress, so uh, I guess how should should we judge that? Is this actually a, a pretty productive and and normal and actually somewhat bipartisan uh, Congress that behind the scenes, uh, or or has something really changed? Um, I, I don't think. I mean, I think in the norms of the last stretch, this seems sort of like what you get. Um, I was thinking that this looks a lot like the 115th Congress sort of structurally is with, you know, it's the first Trump Congress where they do their two big reconciliation things, success or failure, right? Let it go. And then you have sort of that bipartisan period where you have to do the must pass stuff, right? Like that's the other thing that has to happen in this Congress on a bipartisan basis is the discretionary appropriations, right? Like the 22 appropriations are going to have to pass. Um, and then beyond that, you get sort of this stalemate to the election with then sort of like that secret Congress agenda that Matt Iglesias and others have been talking about where you try and pass stuff at sort of the policy guts level that's not ideological and you don't let it jump onto that sort of beyond ideology partisan sort of uh, merry-go-round, right? And so, you know, you have sort of like little stuff you can do that way or big stuff, right? Um, and, and we have some examples of that from past Congresses under Trump and even under Obama um, and then, you know, at the end of the Congress, in the end of 2018, we did get a spurt of policymaking after the election, right? We got the Farm Bill, we got that uh, First Steps Act on, on criminal justice reform. And so maybe that is sort of the span of this Congress. But, you know, in terms of like the, the Biden agenda outside of reconciliation, it's hard to picture anything going anywhere on immigration. It's hard to picture anything going anywhere on union, you know, on the PRO Act or whatever. Police reform seems to have died completely. The Equality Act, no. Election reform, no. They'll probably repeal the AUMF or AUMFs and replace those a little bit. Um, but, you know, the, and the other dimension of this is sort of executive branch reform, right, which I thought there might have been a chance for a bipartisan action on, right? The Democrats had passed that Protect Our Democracy Act in the House last Congress, basically everything Trump had done that they didn't like. Uh, just reverse it, right? So that would be like pardon reform, uh, emolument reform, subpoena, you know, so executive branch subpoena reform, appropriations, the Emergency Act, the impoundments, the IGs, the whistleblowers, like you name it, it was in there. Uh, I thought it was a great bill. And I thought there might be a chance that Democrats would continue wanting that because they're reform-minded and enough Republicans would say, hey, let's hamstring Biden here, uh, that it would go. And I just don't think it's going to happen. I think you have a combination of Republicans have sort of a disinterest in that in general. And Biden's not going to back this because everyone who gets in the White House doesn't want to back this kind of stuff. And so that may be that may be dead too. And then of course, sort of like election reform and voting rights. 
uh, seems like the most possible partisan issue right now. Uh, and so unless you're going to find 50 votes and abolish the filibuster, I don't see that going anywhere. I, I really don't. Like it just doesn't, that goes to the core of sort of non-ideological partisan animosity is how you go about shaping the elections. And that's a really tough sell. So we also obviously just uh, went through the craziest uh, presidential administration uh, ever. People certainly thought that it was going to uh, ch change things uh, fundamentally, at least in the policy terms we've been talking about. Um, it, it doesn't seem to have made that much of a, a permanent mark. Um, one of the crazy things is that um, according to Mayhew's measure, the, the, the 10 uh, major policy changes that occurred in the last Congress, of course it was divided government, but all of them passed with a majority support of both political parties. <laughs> now, five of that was, was COVID bills. But as you mentioned, there were some other uh, uh, successes as well. So how much did Trump really change uh, uh, the, the way that Congress or, or American government is, is acting afterwards? I don't think Trump changed Congress itself particularly much at all. I mean, I think the thing about Trump and Congress is that I thought Trump was a, you know, very weak legislative leader, right? And I, I know my view was always that he largely outsourced legislative agenda setting and policy crafting to the Hill. I, I don't think we've seen sort of a modern presidency where policy was so little developed at the White House or legislative policy, and so much developed in Congress, you know, since the pre-modern presidency. And to that degree, I don't think he had a lot of a lot of luck influencing Congress. When they had unified government, he couldn't get them to do tariffs. He couldn't get them to do the border wall. He couldn't get them to do his huge budget cuts. He couldn't get them to do infrastructure, right? Like the entire non-GOP Trump agenda just kind of got left on the cutting room floor and he got rolled on it. Uh, and then he sticks his foot down on the, on the border wall and the, in the um, CR to patch over the 19 appropriations uh, and cause the shutdown, which he essentially loses. Um, and that's when he's going to get involved in legislative politics right as he's losing unified control. And it goes right back to sort of him versus Pelosi and this big, you know, larger than life figures, which is sort of where he's comfortable. So I didn't think Trump was like, I thought Trump was an extremely weak legislative leader. Um, and uh, and and uh, so, you know, part of what Biden is, is sort of like a step back into sort of normal modern presidency where you do a little bit of administrative centered policymaking for the legislature. Now, where I think Trump did have a big effect, and we've seen this in Congress, is in sort of the Republican Party. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that sort of loyalty to Trump is sort of a dimension of importance, particularly in the House. And Liz Cheney being evicted from the from the leadership sort of highlights that, right? Like maybe you're loyal to Republican policies, tax cuts, deregulate business, oppose Obamacare, that sort of stuff. But if you're not sort of loyal to Trump, the idea, uh, you're not going to survive in, in the House. And, you know, it, you know, just looking at the retirements during Trump's tenure, it seems clearly that he shaped the party, which is obviously going to shape sort of congressional politics. Is that, I mean, I guess, are we understating the, the change there because it maybe doesn't go in the direction that, that people expect? So, I mean, if we compare, you know, the new Gingrich, uh, you know, uh, Congress uh, with the, the, the new um, the House Republicans with, with Clinton uh, or the, the Tea Party uh, House Republicans uh, under Obama, the, the current House Republicans under a new Democratic president seem pretty weak and insignificant <laughs> uh, and, and, and it un, with an unclear strategy. I mean, some people were talking about like last week, could they have helped pass the infrastructure bill and tanked the uh, reconciliation bill? But clearly they didn't want to do that. They didn't seem to have much of a, a strategy or a mobilization at all. Is there I guess has has Trump sort of killed off the, the House Republicans as a useful uh, even from their own perspective, as a, as a having much of a role in American policymaking. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think there's a, a bunch of structural things going on. One is that I think McCarthy is a pretty weak leader, right? And probably not uh, the caliber of even Ryan, and certainly not the caliber of Boehner. Uh, and so, you know, that that is going to cause a problem, especially when you have, in some sense, a bit of a circus underneath you. It's very easy for sort of the minority party in the house to sort of just criticize without responsibility and in the middle of a health public health pandemic that creates certain problems right like you don't see a lot of republican governors running around doing sort of anti-vax 
sort of conspiracy theories. You do get that in the House minority, right? Because they don't have any sort of governing responsibility, which allows sort of your wildest strands to sort of take over and sort of be as strident and as extremist as they want. And so that's some of the function of being a minority. But also some of the things we've already talked about structurally is that like, what incentive does McCarthy really have to help the president, right? He's gonna get the house back, I'd say with, you know, you know, 75% probability or whatever in, in two years. And the last thing he needs uh, is to not do that. And the second last thing he needs is to sort of lose his popularity in the caucus, which is already sort of tenuous, right? Like McCarthy's thinking this through, like, I wanna be speaker, right? Um, serving sort of the Trumpiest interests right now in his caucus is probably the way to go. Um, and so I don't, I don't envy his position to be in right now. But, uh, you know, I don't disagree that the House Republicans don't seem to be a feature of politics right now at sort of the organized leadership driven level. Uh, I do think that sort of just like in general, backbenchers have become more prominent, just like AOC. It's tough to remember. This is our second term in Congress. Right. Uh, but Marjorie Taylor Greene has more face time than sort of any freshman you can imagine in, in the House of Representatives, say, in, you know, 1987 or whatever. Um, and so the rise of sort of these extra voices that aren't unified under the leadership, um, I think has sort of magnified the breadth of ideological views you have so in the majority caucus for sure, but also sort of made it tougher to be sort of that unified minority at the position taking level. Like what is the policy program of the House Republicans? I don't even know, right? And that can be a function of sort of, I don't want to use disarray because it's so ridiculous at this point, but also sort of a, a function of like, uh, their sort of trumpification of ideology where it's more sort of a uh, identity and mood affiliation than it is a set of policy principles that they can get on. So we are going to wrap up soon, but still have some time uh, for uh, a last minute uh, question. Um, congressional coverage uh, in, in the media also got a lot of um, uh, complaints uh, last week. Uh, we seem to be in the classic uh, process over uh, substance uh, kind of coverage. Uh, we seem to be covering mostly disagreement, uh, yelling, not much uh, problem solving. On the other hand, obviously, the, the, the actual behavior of Congress is what is what it is um, and was driving that that coverage. So what, where do you think the, the state status of that is? Is there something else that something better that can be communicated uh, to the public about what's what's going on uh, in Congress? Uh, or is, is the media basically just reacting to what the legislators are doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I wish there was like, I think normatively, there, there's absolutely sort of a better understanding of, of Congress to be had. And, and Congress never popular. No one's ever like, I mean, you can go back to the 19th century, like no one likes Congress as a thing. But that doesn't mean that Congress doesn't serve a really important purpose. Right. And I don't know if people don't like the conflict, they don't like losing, they don't like sort of like the nature of how it works but like this is politics in action you have to have conflict and you have to have a way to resolve it and you know there's a lot of values to a legislature that people just don't accept right it's not we have a separation of power system and there's a presidency and there's congress and there are different groups and that's why they fight like these are different forms of governance and the legislative form is really important right it allows for diversity of ideas because you have lots of people it allows for local representation which is important right and it allows for public deliberation and testing of ideas against the majority, right? Like we could have an elected king, right? But that's a totally different form of government, right? Where you make decisions alone in secret and you don't have to present them in one public support of them, right? Not in the legislature, not in public opinion. And so the legislature itself is really important. Like legislative government is important. The problem is people don't like legislative politics. Like they just think it's unseemly or nasty or they don't like conflict. It's like sitting around a Thanksgiving table and your uncles are arguing about politics. Oh, I can't take it. But like this is, you know, I think inherently the best way for a republic to operate. And so how do you communicate that to people? That what you're seeing on the reconciliation bill is normal, it's healthy, and it's good. Right? It's normal, it's healthy, and it's good. Like the give and take of this is important, right? And working these things out in public is important. Um, but, you know, I think people have sort of this uneasy relationship in general with, with democracy and um, they just want to get what they want to get, right? And they would much rather have Biden snap his fingers and make it happen than have to slog through this in the legislature and sometimes lose and sometimes lose, right? Like, I, you know, when Congress doesn't do anything, 
right? That's a failure if you wanted a policy, but it's a victory in some ways for deliberative democracy. If Congress thought about something, debated it hard, got caught in a deadlock and did nothing, right? That's okay. That's okay. Uh, and so how does the press, uh, the press has all sorts of incentives not to portray it this way, right? Um, this does not sell newspapers like, oh, this is a lovely process we have here. You should enjoy this, right? Conflict, right? And sort of personality fights over sort of substantive policy development through a messy process um, is just how you sell newspapers. And so I, I don't know what the answer is there. Um, I, I think it's sort of, I, they haven't, you know, we didn't, couldn't figure it out 150 years ago. I don't think I figured it out now. Um, but, you know, hopefully like on the margins, you know, particularly as the executive branch becomes more and more powerful in American politics, uh, as more and more statutory authority gets transferred to them, as more and more decisions are being made by executive authority, um, we don't just see that as sort of like inherently bad. We see that there's an alternative to that that is messy, but definitely the alternative to that, because otherwise we're just on this crash course towards sort of like a de facto elected king. And one thing I've been trying to emphasize is uh, that, as you've started with, that a lot of this is a fairly normal process. And a part of that normality is that the governing uh, majority party uh, does not get all of its <laughs> things passed. And many of the things that doesn't pass are because of internal party disagreement, um, not, not uh, necessarily the, the opposition uh, party. So I, I think that's about as, as uh, bright of a note as, as we will have to end on. Uh, so I want to thank uh, Matt Glassman uh, for uh, joining me on a live edition of the Science of Politics and Christy Eshelman uh, at the Niskanen Center uh, for helping us uh, set up uh, this uh, live edition. And thanks to all of you listeners. I also want to use this uh, opportunity uh, to call for the the the. Uh, a new return of Congress to Beer Zen, a great podcast that Matt uh, Glassman is involved in. Uh, and to recommend a couple of our other episodes, uh, my long discussion of the filibuster with Sarah Bender uh, and uh, my discussion uh, of the uh, compromise uh, in uh, Congress uh, with uh, Francis Lee uh, that was mentioned earlier in the process. I think if you like this discussion, uh, you'll like those too. So thanks so much uh, for joining us and please join us again uh, next time on the Science of Politics. Mm -hmm.